Hello, and welcome back to the Break the Twitch podcast on minimizing distractions and doing more of what matters through minimalism, habits, and creativity. I am your host, Anthony Ungaro. In this episode, I have a lovely conversation with my friend Alex Paglieri. He's a designer, creator, and the entrepreneur responsible for creating things like the CR Brand Notebook. He's a fascinating guy with a breadth of experience, and I really enjoyed this conversation. We talk about why he switched his major in school from computer science to architecture, how he started a company called These Men Are Professionals, the benefits and pitfalls of self-employment, how design is different from art, and much more. We dig really deep in this one and walk down some pretty interesting pathways, so definitely get settled in and give it a listen. As always, this podcast is brought to you ad-free by the Break the Twitch member community. Members get monthly 21-day audio courses, access to a private member-only forum, and a 20-minute one-on-one video welcome call with me. So you can join this amazing, intentional, living-focused online community right now for just $9 a month. We would greatly appreciate your support. You can find out more at breakthetwitch.com community. But for now, let's start the show. This one, the triangle I got several years ago mm-hmm. um, here in Minneapolis, actually not too far from our house here okay. at uh, Leviticus Tattoo. This one I just got this year in Arizona. It's an envelope, envelope. and it is a, uh, it's a finishing tattoo. It's a delivery tattoo. Close the envelope. Close ship the envelope, it. ship it. Uh, I tend to keep things perfect in my mind Mm-hmm. And especially earlier in my 20s, getting into entrepreneurship, creative yeah. projects, I built a lot of half-built houses. Yeah. And there were some major projects that I finished in the, the, the year leading up to this, and I realized that I wanted to symbolize the importance of what I'd learned yeah. about minimalism of few but better yeah. and ship finish. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's yeah. what you hoped but you need to finish it and put it out there. Perfect is the enemy of good. I've been yes. hearing that a lot lately and thinking about it a lot lately. I want you to see this. Yeah. I got that this year. Did you? Yeah. I don't know if that shows up on the thing, but. Yeah, um, it'll, probably, it'll probably show up. It's pr- remarkably similar. I have a geometric tattoo on my left forearm. I love it. <laughs> this is a checkbox. It's also like the, I've thought about getting a tattoo for a really long time. And I was playing with the idea of, a tattoo is forever, which is interesting because it's going on a human body, which is not forever, but there's something about there's something about the story of eternity and temporary impermanence, that, that whole thing. And then another part of it was arbitrariness. So the tattoo that the first tattoo that I ever thought I would get for more than a few months was a, a straight one inch line. I remember that. You do? Yeah. Okay. And I don't, re- I don't remember where I was thinking of getting it. I'd never had a plan for that. This is four quarter inch lines in a square. And 
which is arbitrary. Like an inch is an extremely arbitrary thing. It's, you know, people say it's a knuckle or whatever. It's a piece of another thing. And the story of how the inch came to be is bizarre. I don't know the answer, but like, how could it possibly be built out of anything? Because nothing is precise in the universe. So mm-hmm. how could they? Anyway, um, I liked the idea of having as exactly an inch as you can get from your tattoo artist. So there's a story about their failure to hit an exact inch and the story of the thickness of an ink line and the way that changes over your lifetime, the way your skin stretches and shrinks and changes shape. You know, what is a straight line on a human body is another question. So I was enamored with all of those contradictions and stories. And then um, a kind of similar thing started happening. I felt myself beginning to achieve things or finish things. And I think I've not really had a problem finishing stuff. It's more of a problem starting stuff. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. But uh, a checkbox is a really wonderful little moment for me. And I wound up building a company on it. So I like checking boxes. And I know how how much of a dad move it is to do that. Just a, well, my dad actually tried to get me to make a checkbox notebook type of thing when I was a kid, way too soon. But I really get the wisdom of it now. You set, you, it has to be a bite-sized task. Like the first couple checkboxes you make are a nightmare because they're, you know, be a better person. But that's not a box you can check. Like that one you get to check when you die. If you do a good enough job, mm-hmm. uh, you won't be there to check it. But bite-sized tasks, you know, every task is made up of bite-sized tasks. So converting a dream into a list of things you can do is kind of the mission or thing I've been exploring for the past couple of years. And seeing things that way has been really helpful. And I'm definitely not great at it, but I love to write down checkboxes for things that I've already done. And that little bit of encouragement from yourself is a really powerful thing. It is. <laughs> yeah. I think it's pretty cool that you have a triangle and I have a square. My next one's a triangle. I, I don't think I can do like, I don't think I can do art. I think I have to do <laughs> shapes. There's, there's I'm a, a lot. designer. I'm not an artist. Oh, no, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a good way to, good way to put it. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the simplicity of this, mm-hmm. it's funny because a lot of those things hit, this is exactly an inch and a half. Okay. I is that a 30, 60, 90? It is a, it is a, um, it is in the proportions of the golden ratio. Oh. So it is in the proportions of the golden ratio, but the hilarious part is that my arm is curved, mm-hmm. thus shortening the appearance of the bottom bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Otherwise, it would look a little more drawn out this mm-hmm. way if it were completely, I can't flatten my arm, but, yeah. right? And I got this tattoo because this is the idea of everything being difficult. And as you get into it, the deeper you get into a flow state, the easier it gets if you push that that rock up the, the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. It, it will roll down at the top, but you have to get it up there first. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot of what it symbolized for me for this initial thing. But yeah, keeping it just minimal and like clean, yeah, uh, 
I just, I don't know. I didn't want filling. This is, and, and the, the hilarious part about this, the uh, tattoo, what did not happen with this one was any scarring or any kind of mm -hmm. uh, imperfections mm -hmm. in the actual line. And then this one, if you look close, yeah, see a little. you can see where the line broke. Mm -hmm. And, and. Uh, wow. On the tattoo about finishing stuff. Yes. Ugh. And <laughs> I called the tattoo artist a couple weeks later. Yeah. And I was thinking like, hey, I noticed that the, the lines didn't come out super clean. He's like, oh, yeah, just come on in and I'll, I'll just go over them again and, you know, clean up. That happens. And I started thinking about it. I was like. This couldn't have been better. It's so good. It's exactly what I needed. Yeah. And so uh, I have an imperfect tattoo of, yeah. uh, of finishing. Yeah. Yeah. I understand the urge to have a perfect tattoo. And I think the first time I thought of getting a tattoo, I really would have needed it to be perfect, which is absurd. And they tell you that when you walk in the shop, but how can they prepare you for that? That's a, that's a lesson you have to learn over years that nothing will ever, ever be perfect. Mm-hmm especially something on the human body. Give it a week and it's gonna look worse than it did. So I, I love that story. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, part of me let it, learning to let go. The shape mm -hmm. is pretty great, but the lines, you know, the, just having yeah, gaps. Those like, cracks are so good. Man, that just became part of the narrative. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank Alex. you. I'm, <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have you here, and and uh, honestly, for you to be visiting Minneapolis and us to have the chance to sit down and talk through some of life's questions. Mm -hmm. um, we've known each other for a very long time. Yeah. When did we meet? I mean, it would have been shortly during or after high school, yeah. in within some context, yeah. and then a continuing context through mutual friends and mm -hmm. through. Uh, a particular graduation type party from arch your architecture yeah. program at the University of Michigan, yep. uh, where I was an assistant DJ, I believe, <laughs> if that <laughs> fills you in on some of the narrative here. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I visited you in Seattle several years mm -hmm. ago. You are a creator of things. Oh, that's great. You're a designer. Uh, you do just so many things I find eclectically fascinating mm -hmm. and and cool as someone Thank who you. also <laughs> as someone who also uh pursues these types of things making mm -hmm. stuff um what was some of your earliest exploration of of that type of thing creating was there a time when you figured out that like this is a path for you wow yeah i just had flashbacks to moments in my youth and like a dreamlike recollection of uh, shaping moments in my past that I haven't thought about in forever. So mm. That's a pretty good question. Also, I want to thank you for not calling me a maker <laughs> or a craftsman. Oh, yeah. I think we've, we were talking about pigeonholing people yesterday and those words, as soon as anybody said them, they became uh, just a really good sticky label to put on people who liked touching things, which if anybody's paying attention is everybody. So that, that, I appreciate that. Uh, but to answer your question, I remember in Boy Scouts making a Pine Box, Pine Box Derby car with my dad, hmm. doing better than we expected. It was sort of a teardrop shape and it had black and, white, or black and yellow stripes like a bee. Always been a fan of bees. 
and I got second place at the local thing, and that was like, oh my God, I did something. So that's the end of that little slice. And then I guess the next big thing for me was in architecture school. First off, I, was in, I came out of computer science in college. I did that for three years, and I kind of just made it through. I wasn't really trying, and that should have been my first signal. And the first time there was a test that the answers couldn't be learned while taking the test, which is surprisingly many tests, I totally bombed it. And I wasn't doing my homework, and I should have known then, but I didn't. I couldn't have known. I wasn't wise enough yet. But then I went to Norway to visit a friend. She bought me a beer and she told me about architecture. And she told me that it's a profession for generalists and I, I fell in love with her description. It's like creating the spaces that people find themselves in and uh, the feeling of where you are in a moment, something like that. Who knows, maybe I've completely made that up. I had had a pretty strong Norwegian beer. <laughs> I immediately went home, used my seniority at college to switch into my first choice of classes in architecture school. I had to take intro, like entry-level freshman English because you don't need that for engineering, but you need that for, uh, what do you call it, LSNA, like architecture school. So I loved the idea of making things that people would touch. And when I was in computer science, I always imagined I'd be building websites and I didn't know it at the time, but I was interested in user experience. That phrase didn't exist then. And if it had, I might still be in user experience. But we were learning how to code in binary. And that's when I checked out. I was like, I'm so glad there are people that do this and I want nothing to do with it myself. So I switched into architecture. Huge improvement. I started thinking about aesthetic. I started realizing that I had one. I started realizing that I cared about the way things looked and felt. I wanted to create things that people would be satisfied looking at and touching and using. And buildings was just kind of my first point of contact with that idea since the Pine Box Derby and maybe a handful of other things. But in architecture school, my favorite class was the architecture of objects with a designer named Sean Jackson. In that class, we had up to four projects over the course of the semester, which is a very small number of projects. I left that class feeling really um, affirmed by creating things with my hands and not being disappointed with the results. Hmm. I didn't know I could do that. And I kind of took a break after that. Back to the actual story, the break between architecture school and um, making stuff was when I moved to Seattle. I graduated from architecture school, moved to Seattle, and then the first job I got was in a climbing gym, and then I got a job. I had a couple other odd jobs, and then I, and then I kind of floated trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Time went on, I was fixing bikes, uh, and, and that was satisfying too, because I was back to using my hands, and there was also a directed task I wasn't using my hands to create a thing. I was using my hands to make a thing work, hmm. which is also, there's something important there because it's not just making things for the sake of making an arbitrary thing. It's like this thing needs to exist and this person needs this thing to work. So let's make this thing work so that they can forget it exists. And I love that, like a good thing, uh, notwithstanding my current, sort of oily cowboy look. I usually like the haircut. I tell the hairdresser or barber, 
I want people to forget that I have a haircut. Like, give me the haircut that makes people forget that I have hair. That's a, that's new for me. That's a new uh, idea. And okay. I, I like it. Yeah. Okay. Then I started These Men Are Professionals, and I didn't know what that needed to be. But the, the idea, I think, kind of relates to that, which is I wanted to connect people to things that are the best at doing what they're for, which it's a Herculean task. And I also made the mistake of mixing that with things that I made myself. Mm. Uh, why, why is that a mistake? Yeah, <laughs> why, is that, uh, um, why is that a mistake? That took me a while to figure out. Uh, it's about scaling and the economy of scale. First, let's, let's okay. back up to these men are professionals. Yeah. Uh, what is that? Okay. And, and how did it sort of come to you to, to do that? I, I okay. understand the mission, but. Yeah. Well, have you ever met my friend Jono? I think you have. Yeah, I architecture know, school. I know of, yes. Okay. We're extremely close in architecture school. We still talk to each other all the time. And we would come up with names for businesses or architecture firms. And we thought it would just be the two of us. So at some point we came up with the name These Men Are Professionals. And then I just took it because it was great. And I, I loved how tongue-in-cheek it was. And I also kind of liked that it was just me. I thought that was funny, you know, I, which turned out to be a huge mistake. People were like, who's these men? Isn't it like, who else is there? It's like, no, it's just me. Really? I, don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you. I started apprenticing with a blacksmith in Michigan, sort of out of nowhere. His name's Mike Wolf. He makes amazing stuff. He is a practical artist. I'm not an artist. I don't know how to make things without constraints. I think some people have internal constraints or the, the drive to express from within and it bubbles out in with their hands. But for me, I can, I can only, generally speaking, I like to make things to solve a problem. And if there's no problem, I don't wanna make anything. That got me a job in a metal shop. I learned how to fabricate. I know how to weld now. I can TIG weld. I can make pretty much any sized thing out of metal if you give me the budget and the time. Obviously, I learned a lot about making stuff with my hands there. That was incredible. And I met vendors. And I started making keychains because another friend of mine from a while ago said, hey, Lake Superior kind of looks like a bottle opener. Do you think you could, my dad and I have been talking about this for years, do you think you could like get us a keychain or something made out of steel that works as a bottle opener? Like, that's crazy. I'm I'm gonna try to do that. Give me some give me some time. Do you have any money? Like can you <laughs> can you give me some money to pay the, the water jet cutters to cut this? And you know, I got the price down. The first time I cut it, it was like ten dollars a unit, which is just not gonna work at retail. Nobody's gonna pay fifty bucks for one of these things. But as I scaled up, I learned a bunch and then I realized I was starting to make these things and I needed a business to sell them through. So then I stole the name These Men Are Professionals. I did metal fabrication, custom products, products that I took to be the best of in the category. Like I said, that's an impossible task, but I'm glad I tried. And I still, I still have that eye toward things that are good, and I mm -hmm. kind of preach about them sometimes. Like I can tell you what the best can opener is. I can. Tell you. Hmm. 
Uh, does that answer your question about these men are professionals? Yes. Okay. And now I'm curious. So it you, just became me incorporated at this. And at this point, that's what it is. So if somebody wanted to hire me to like consult on a design project or help them manufacture an object somewhere, mm -hmm. they'd be hiring these men are professionals and these men are professionals would be paying me. So you were creating your own things, mm -hmm. putting them in, in this e-commerce mm -hmm. sort of environment and also identifying the what you consider the best of the best, mm -hmm. selling some of those things alongside. You said that that was not ideal. What what was not oh. ideal about it? You spread yourself thin, and it's hard to do what you intend to do on either of the things. I just saw that quote from Ron Swanson today, never half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. Yeah. That's Ultimately, that's what it is. Uh, but at that point, I couldn't have told you what my dream was I had things that I cared about and I tried to put them into one business. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't regret it. I learned a ton of stuff and it's still in business. I paid my rent off of selling keychains for two years. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and that business experience got me a job in Seattle and that job in Seattle helped me get a job in San Francisco. What were some of the things that that experience and being in that place like yeah. taught you about the world the way pricing is done the moment someone hears what it costs to make something they anchor that as the price for what it should cost them which devalues all of the work it takes to get it to them through all of the channels that it that that entails mm. e-commerce in general has changed that but we're in an awkward phase right now with retailers and e-commerce existing concurrently the best way to run a business right now, I think, is just manufacture to the warehouse, warehouse to the customer. There's no, there's no middleman in that equation. But the middleman was a necessary part of commerce for pretty much the entire history of at least the United States. Mm. Sears couldn't exist without Sears stores. I mean, the catalog was a, was a big part of that, but they needed shipping centers. So generally speaking, the way pricing works is the manufacturer pays for materials and labor. They charge a cost to the first person to buy it, the manufacturer. They double that cost to sell it to a distributor. The distributor, if they have wholesalers after that, double the cost to the wholesaler. The wholesaler doubles the cost to the retailer and the retailer doubles the cost to the consumer. And it's really easy to resent all of those people, but you wouldn't have seen that thing if not for every person in there and they couldn't exist if they didn't make money. So the value of a thing has so many, it comes from so many different places and they're really hard for people to think about. But once you run a business and you try to think about that stuff, it's impossible to ignore. And now I respect, I remember early on hearing someone say, you know, if you, uh, if you ask someone who makes things and has them shipped, they, they have a fulfillment place. People will still ask me sometimes, hey, where's the best way for me to buy this thing? Do you want me to just give you cash? Like, I, in, in the sense of, you'll get more money from this sale if I buy it directly from you. Would you like me to do that? Which is a, such a noble thing to do. But the longer things go, as like the more experience I have in business, the more I'm just like, no, buy it from the store. I want them to know that it's worth it to carry my thing. And they actually provide value because if you buy it from them, they're going to carry it. More people are going to see it. And that's why I want them to have the thing. And that's why your money should go to them. 
It's better for me in the long run. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, paperwork, really annoying. Would love to not have to do that. Taxes, like all of this stuff about running a business. There's so many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it can never really just be the the one dream. Fortunately, I'm interested in solving problems in general, not just one kind. So, like, how can I optimize the way I do my taxes for my business? I have to do it quarterly. Is there some way I can get a thing to like download? information and spit out a number for me to just type into the department of licensing website and get my excise taxes paid i don't know you're never just doing the thing it's it's wow (laughs) (laughs) so concise so beautiful you're never just doing the thing and and that's one of the striking elements of of becoming a consultant so leaving a full-time job and consulting yes you can literally charge twice as much per hour, mm-hmm. three, four times as much per hour as you may have been making in a job. Mm-hmm. But that- You'd be amazed how th- much not money that is. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. And, and even that, right, is such a perception thing about how much money there actually is in the world available. Mm-hmm. But you can charge three, four times as much, 10 times as much, whatever, but that simply and, and that's mind-blowing for a person that is in a job getting paid an hourly wage or a salary to do mm-hmm. a thing that is probably earning the company two to five times that mm-hmm. if they're doing it right yeah. and if you're doing it right. Yeah. That is just not clear truth, though. <laughs> yeah. That is not – you're not walking home or taking home ten times what you were making right. before if you become a consultant. Mm-hmm. You are, but it doesn't account for the fact that perhaps you're spending 30 to 40% of your time invoicing your clients, finding the next client, managing the project, trying to wrangle the things that are just not billable hours. They're just not, you can't do a lot of this stuff. And uh, increasingly, as I walk this path of entrepreneurship, of self, I've been self-employed for two years now, a little over two years, and you start to see the green grass on both sides of the fence. Yes. And that's just something worth noting, yep. I think. I don't even know what else I have to say about that, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but it, it's just something worth noting yeah. because when I was in full-time, I always dreamed of like, wow, these yeah. YouTubers that all they do is make videos and they're making a living. Right. And as a YouTuber now myself, it's like, wow, there's <laughs> so much more to it than that. And the act of making a video that fits the right content that gives you a feeling of providing value to the world instead of just putting something out there because you hope it gets views. Yeah. Like balancing all of that stuff is a whole beast itself. So it's just never what it seems until you do it. And I, and I, I am a strong proponent of, uh, trying and, and having and experiencing these things so that you can be like, wow, um, I think you brought it up to me yesterday when you said opting in, mm. right? Instead of going with right. what you know, do something else so that you can opt back in. And I'm yeah. stealing that directly from <laughs> you. So I'm, I don't want it to come off as though I'm means. saying that and that, but I really loved that. I don't know. Yeah. What, what does opting in mean to you? First, it implies that you know what you're opting into, which is an important part of it. And that's what you were talking about, the... If you go and start your own business, it makes you appreciate where all the money that you're not earning is going. 
you know, and, and not resenting that fact, you know, as a, if all you've ever done is work for a consultancy and they pay you whatever, let's say 25 bucks an hour, and you know that your billing rate is 150 bucks an hour, if you haven't run your own business, it's really easy to have a bad attitude about that. If you have run your own business, you're grateful not to be dealing with all of that other junk because you can just do the thing. So that would be opting back into the, the workforce mm -hmm. as opposed to your own business. So, so one of the things that, I mean, I started These Men Are Professionals when I was, I think, 24 or 26, somewhere in there. And I didn't know, looking back, I know what I got out of it. And I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad it's still going too. There's something really special about having that thing be somewhat self-sufficient. I, I always planned it like I didn't want to do anything that I wouldn't be able to take my hands off and let it run after I was no longer there. That might actually be one of the reasons that I didn't want to do thing my, my own handmade things concurrent with good products. Because if I get an order for a hundred of my steel greeting cards, it's going to be a nightmare for me, especially now when I don't work in a metal shop. I don't know what I'll do. I'll probably have to pay somebody to do it. But I was looking at it like I'm still young enough that this risk is worth it because the upside is practically infinite. You know, if this goes well for me, then I will have a hundred percent ownership of a good business and I'll get to direct where that goes and keep that aligned with my own ethics and goals. And that's a great reason to start a business. I think being, being in control and keeping the alignment aligned with you that matters. Also the unlimited, unlimited upside is a good thing to be rolling the dice on when you're around 25 and then time goes on. Didn't work. For me, I don't have unlimited upside. I can't buy a house with the, the money that I make from these men are professionals. But turns out that running my own business turned me into a person who knows what it takes to run a business. And people love employees who understand what running a business feels like because they do things like not buy things that are expensive just because they can and they talk to vendors and other employees with a different kind of, with a different approach. An understanding of the whole system, why things are the way they are, an appreciation of why they are the way they are. All of that stuff is stuff that I learned that I wouldn't have expected to. Mm -hmm. My first full-time job off of being self-employed was a design consultancy in Seattle. And I, I was hired as the industrial designer there. And the guy, Dave, who called me, specifically said there were two other good candidates. Both of them are probably better at 3D modeling than you, but I'm hiring you because you've run your own business. Hmm. What a validation. I, you know, I had been doing it for five plus years, uh, five to eight years. And ooh, when it's kind of a struggle and you're kind of paying rent and, you know, it's just not enough, it can feel really like an indictment against you and your choices. And hearing that was such an important moment for me in my life, like that the, the work I'd put in was not just worth doing, but actually put me somewhere that other people weren't. 
Wow, what a relief. Mm. And that job was really awesome. I learned a ton. Worked with some really cool clients. We just helped people make things, um, largely plastic injected parts and made in China and shipped over here. And consulting with people on how to do that in a way that will be profitable for them and make a product that works the way they intend it to, which is really hard. And that's a really good design problem. Uh, and design to me has always just been problem solving. And I don't just want to solve the problem of designing the perfect product. I want to design because the perfect product can't just, it can't cost a billion dollars to make a perfect can opener. No one will buy it. So it's not a perfect product. It has to be, you have to make a product that can be shipped to every Walmart and people will pay the amount that it costs by the time it gets there. If you can't do that, it's not a perfect product. So the whole story of manufacturing it effectively, designing it to keep the costs down, thinking about how to design the tools, where you can cut unneeded features or elegantly solve problems within the product to reduce the manufacturing cost or the shipping cost or the packaging cost or whatever. All of those constraints are really interesting problems to solve and I think of them as part of the design process. The word design is kind of up in the air right now. Uh, the computer programmers have kind of taken over the word. Like this design was the first to go. It means everything now. And then product design, which used to be kind of like industrial design, but a little bit more about industry or that's funny, um, manufacturing than industrial design, maybe. I don't know the evolution of the word and all the phrases involving the word design is kind of frustrating. Because now, if you look up design as a job, it's mostly about computer products. Like app design, is product design now means designing an app. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what to call myself. I think of an industrial designer as a person who designed, you know, like uh, Charles and Ray Eames, people who designed a chair to be made on a specific machine and how to adjust the machine to get the chair to be just what it needed to be the marriage between what we want this thing to be and what the machine can do and the elegant m marriage of those two things hmm. to make a just perfect object. As someone external to what I would call the design world maybe or the product design mm -hmm. world, I've never heard it in that context. Okay. And so that's an exciting and new thought to me. Hmm. Um, I've always pictured good design as the best thing that you can come up with in your brain and turn into a physical product yeah. or an image on a sheet. Yeah. Not that also only has four colors, so it can be printed properly and efficiently. Yeah. And all, which this totally totally makes sense, but it's just not a context that I've really considered yeah. The, the limitations of design and, and how those actually can be beneficial maybe and influence the design itself. That's, that's cool. I wouldn't be able to think about this clearly if not for a book called How Engineers See the World or How Engineers Think. It's an IDEO book. It's the first thing I ever bought when I moved to Seattle. Hmm. It's a picture book and each picture tells a little story. So the book is split into sections. I kind of wish I'd brought it. But, you know, one of the sections is time and it'll show things like and they're bad pictures. They're like pixely and not, they're not like, most of them are not well set up. 
they look like pictures that a designer or an engineer or someone with that eye saw that thing and they're like, there's a story there. I I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to take a picture real quick. So there's one of a screw in an air vent at the top of a subway that had vibrated its way out and only one of them had. And there's so much information in that story. There's the train rattles hard enough that it can shake a screw loose. Nobody's looked at this screw for long enough to screw it back in, or it's been screwed in so many times that it has ripped itself out. And the only reason it's still hanging in is because the sheet metal is like there enough to hold the tip of the screw. And um, like only that one screw wasn't tightened enough. Like all of that information is in that photo and I loved it. But the one that, that I always come back to and inspires me, it's so lame, <laughs> is the, a picture of a fountain, no, a, a, like a, a hose faucet for the exterior of a house. Hmm. It's one of those nickel impregnated steel, you know the one, it's at the hardware store, it costs $1.50. And the story in the picture is the concrete behind this, uh, this faucet is all dark except for a cone shape right under it. And that's just great. But to, but the thing I noticed about it is that that faucet, and they may have addressed this in the book or maybe I noticed it on my own, I can't remember. But the, the fact of that faucet head is that it costs $1.50. There are millions of them. You only buy one. Like you stick that to the outside of your house and six people are gonna buy that house you'll be long dead before somebody has to replace that thing. And it's so cheap and it's everywhere mm -hmm. and it works over and over and over. It doesn't explode, it doesn't rust, it doesn't fall apart, it just performs. It doesn't do a great job, but it doesn't need to do a great job. And in that sense, all it really needs to do, like its constraints are, delivers water from inside to the, of the house to a hose without leaking a ton not even like without leaking, <laughs> without leaking a ton. And it needs to be something that we can just fire out a, a hundred million of them a year. <laughs> and, and I love that. I yeah. love because the, the whole design story is taken care of in that simple object. Mm -hmm. It's not beautiful. It's quite ugly. And I would rather have one that was beautiful, but I know what the cost difference would be because it's more expensive to make something beautiful and I know people wouldn't really buy it so that the volume would be lower and the price would be even more than it would be if it were at the same volume as this cheapo thing. So it's been optimized. And, you know, I am skeptical of capitalism as you are, but there's something, I think the, what people spend their money on has suggested that that is the, optimal solution to that problem, at least within the context we're in. If we could reset the story and start back over at the point when somebody first invented that thing, maybe they could have done something better and it could be better, but like, we're not gonna do that. It's gonna, I mean, it's $1.50 right now. If you hate it, like bash it off your house and buy a new one. Mm -hmm. You can buy 10 of them and get the one that leaks the least. It's like, it's that good of a solution to the moment and all the constraints that constrain it. That's design, to me. Yeah. It's not beautiful coffee mugs, although this one works, so.
Uh, I've never thought about uh, host bigots in that way either. I know. (laughs) So I would love to know whether it's specific to creation or whether it's specific to any other aspect of your life. Are there any routines or habits that you intentionally practice on a regular basis? And if so, what might they be or look like? My first instinct is to say that I don't have habits or any intentional habits, which is bad. Uh, I'm, that's my own review. I'm not, I'm not um, downloading somebody else's evaluation of my choices. I, th- I don't like the way that I do that. I wish that I did a better job of choosing a correct answer and then just sort of sticking with it. I think check boxes might be my answer to that because they're adaptable to change. It's just solve this thing. I'm really not good at modifications to my diet. I'm not good at a workout plan. Uh, I'm not good at catching the same train to work every day. Routines are tough. I, I have a hard time with routines. Why? I forget them. I've always kind of struggled with a certain kind of memory. I have pretty good recall. You know, if I look back to a moment, I remember the first time you and I spoke on the phone. I remember what we talked about. I remember being impressed with your enthusiasm. And I remember Chris being on the phone and being relatively quiet. Uh, But when I walk out the door, I forget my coffee mug. And And there's no thing in my brain that pipes up and goes, hey man, remember, you gotta grab the thing. Or while you're out, you might also wind up doing this, so you might wanna take that thing with you. And I think that's what drives routines. Like the, unless, until they turn into habits. Mm-hmm. And then they just sort of happen by accident. For me, I think the way to create a habit is I have to change my mind and eliminate the obstacles so that that thing becomes the easiest thing to do and then it just becomes natural. Environmental design. That's what it is, yes. I think that might be the only one that works for me. So I have noticed that I've changed the way that I'm eating lately. And the way that happened was my friend and I did this. He's been doing it over and over again. He's a very disciplined person. I live with him now and oh my God, it's such a life-changing thing to live with somebody who's that disciplined. It's called the ultimate diet 2.0. And you carb starve yourself for the first half of the week. You just rocket ship yourself into ketosis. And then you're doing depletion workouts the whole time and then you hit Thursday and you eat a cliff bar and you go and you lift big weights because you're not doing depletion anymore you're starting to feed yourself and as soon as that workout's over until Friday evening for my numbers I have to eat a kilogram of carbohydrates by Friday night in a day and a half that's like two three pounds of pasta Uh uh-huh so intense carb loading for glycogen recovery yes after the big refill your muscles and my understanding of it I haven't really dug in that much. I just kind of wanted to shake everything up enough that I would reset any kind of established habits. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Uh, but yeah, you you reset your hormones. Your body's like, oh, okay, I thought we were starving there. Whew, I'm glad that's not happening. We're good. We're chill. 
And then Saturday, Sunday, you eat like a normal person. And then Monday comes and your body's like, man, that was, that sucked. Last. Wait, what's going on? No, no, no. <laughs> and then, Not again. Yeah, you do that over and over again. And it's got a time limit. It's eight weeks at most. Mm -hmm. And boy, does that reset. It really does. It resets your relationship to carbohydrates and food in general and exercise and daily routine and all that stuff. It did everything that I'd hoped it would do. Mm. But the the change to my behavior after doing that extremely drastic thing is pretty small. So now I look at something with a bunch of sugar in it and I go, oh, eh. So every, you know, every once in a while I'm, I'm eating that garbage less or I'm eating that pasta a little bit less, but I haven't changed a lot, but it's been enough. So I think I have to yeah, I remember you talking about that on your podcast. Environment, what do you call it? Environmental design. Design. Yeah, the big part of it for me. Um, thank you for sharing that. And and the big part of it for me has been realizing that our environment directly influences our actions, and we do have discipline up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. Some more than others. Yeah. But that in order to allow ourselves to break the twitch literally, yeah. uh, we need to give ourselves a fighting chance to do that. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, we have to create the environment that will best facilitate it. And this is my own exploration of what it means for me to have good habits and not eat sugar uh, more than I should yeah. and go to the gym regularly and do strong lifts and do yeah. the things that, that make me feel really good after I, I do them. But the cognitive dissonance of the twitch of the now mm -hmm. versus the aligned with what I believe fully in this world uh, is a, that's a closer gap or a farther gap, depending yeah. on the day. And so my pursuit of an exploration of habits and what I talk, when I talk about what I learn while doing this, it all comes down to figuring out how to trick myself into doing the thing that I know is best for me. Yeah. I know that whatever I bring home, I'm gonna eat. Mm -hmm. So going to the gym and shopping for groceries after working out, mentally is always in the like, yeah, I'm gonna just smash some vegetables right now. Just brown rice, yes, please. Chicken, yes, please. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I want the things that I know will continue what I had just done mm -hmm. by working out and so i've sort of hacked my life in little ways that mm -hmm. have helped create these routines of having i have check boxes like did you take your supplements this morning did you hit your macros today because yeah. that's generally what i follow protein carbs fats mm -hmm. hitting those targets yeah. generally every day and uh and I've had to really work to, to do this. And, and part of what I call it is intentional friction. It's creating intentional wow. friction. Against the thing that you don't want to happen. Precisely. Yeah. And because in so many ways, our world is being designed to reduce friction as a method of marketing. Wow. Right? So it, it was yeah. said, in, in, there's an amazing <laughs> oh, book so about designing addictive smartphone applications. It's called Hooked. Yeah, and I read it from the context of I'm, I don't right now I don't want to design an addicting smartphone application, but I found it fascinating around the, the formation of habits from a design perspective, mm -hmm. 
And in that book, it says it is easier to decrease the effort required for a person to do something than it is to increase their desire to do it. Yeah. So that is how we end up with Facebook, the pull to refresh yep. in various apps, Instagram, the addictive lottery style um, stimulus yep. that, that we have from these things and the effort to open the app, the effort to get the quick hit of yep. one click purchase yeah. a day, an hour later in some cities, it's there. All of these things are meant to reduce friction. But in order for us to regain, mm -hmm. recapture our moments, we have to redesign the experience by adding friction back, by deleting the app, yeah. literally making it harder so that we have that gap. Yeah, that's why I don't have Facebook on my phone. Right, same. Was this book by Tristan Harris? No, he's great though. I've seen he's a bunch of his stuff. So good. Yeah. Um, and, and that was the first thing that opened my eyes to the thing you just said about apps yeah. being not even intentionally designed. It's just, it's natural selection in apps. If your app doesn't addict people, it's nobody uses it. Right. Right. There's, there's an incentive to be destructive of human values when you're <laughs> building an app. The oddity of this is I don't think that there are a bunch of people right. in Silicon Valley or yeah. in, in the Bay that are sitting there going like, okay, yeah. how can we addict? But I think that there are deep levels of analytics. Mm -hmm. And I think that someone comes up with an idea yep. and it's tested with a limited user base. And we find out, hey, the people that we deployed yeah. the, the thumbs up button to started using the app on average five minutes more than people that didn't have it. Yep. Let's and deploy. Then the, and then the Johnny Come Lately has to do the same thing. Yeah. And then as soon as there's a like a button on Facebook, you have to have a like button on Twitter. Exactly. You can't call it exactly the same thing, but it, it's the same thing. Yeah. You have to. You have to. Re you have to recreate the friction that they're taking away from you. That that drives you toward like curling. You have to like sprinkle snow back on the ice <laughs> to <laughs> to push that yeah. that. What do you call it? The kettle. No. <laughs> I don't know the stone. The, that sounds right. The stone. The I, rock. I, yeah, well, the weight you put down the ice. Yeah, the yeah. big rock uh, to push it back in the direction that you'd be proud that it went. Yeah, or that you, in your deepest, most sincerest place, want it to go. Yeah. Like, and this is the thing that's that's to me both so important about this stuff, about mm -hmm. like exploring this stuff and what it means is that if we don't choose. If we don't opt in, someone else is going to choose. Someone else yeah. is going to just make the choice for us yeah. until we decide to otherwise. Yeah. And I also feel deeply that there should be, we should feel no shame around the way that we live our lives right now. Mm. That if we struggle with smartphone addiction or with social media or with spending money on things that are like, these are does these are these are things that are made by design mm -hmm. intentionally or not yeah maliciously or not yeah. to exploit the human need to be validated and yeah. all these elements of things that we want to not starve and mm -hmm. literally that psychological process is built into to this stuff so i don't know like what so you, is that? You, you say that you don't want us to feel ashamed of that yeah cool yeah. But that doesn't mean don't change. 
Of course It just not. means don't be mad at yourself. Change because you want to be better. Don't change because you hate yourself. Right. The last thing I would ever want someone listening to one of these podcast episodes or listening to like one of my videos or something on Break the Twitch or, you know, is yeah. like, oh, you're, you know, oh, I have a problem and like, you're no. Yeah. Like, that is one of the things that I've discovered watching your videos and listening to your podcast. It's not what you expect. And I appreciate that. I'm not surprised, really, but it is surprising that you're, that you're pushing for the correct motivations to do things, that you would say something like that. Because regret's a powerful motiv motivator. Mm -hmm. Self-loathing is an extremely powerful motivator until it gets so bad that you just like, you don't, you don't feel like you deserve to be better, mm -hmm. then it's really bad. But good for you. Thanks, man. I'm proud of you for sticking sticking by that. Thank you. It's uh, perhaps a longer road, but it's, it's really hard to run a business that is stubborn in any way. But it's hard to be a person and remain proud of yourself if you're not stubborn about the things you care about. So much of this stuff is is uh, my perception of of what YouTube is of what being a creator now is the big term. Yeah, we support creators like this YouTube's narrative, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A big part of this is is learning that it's not what it seems, and that when I make a video, for example, about minimalism. Mm -hmm. which is something that I'm legitimately interested in and support, mm -hmm. but it's one third of, of yeah. what I believe is important. But when I make a video about minimalism, it gets three times the views of when I make a video about create, like creatively expressing yourself in a way that benefits you and other people around you. Mm -hmm. Or if I spend a lot of time making something specifically about habits, yeah. but minimalism always does better. Yeah. And the, Difficult part of that is that yes, I do enjoy that, but I also need to reach more people. Yeah. And so if I make another video about minimalism, that draws in more people that are interested about minimalism, meaning uh, that yeah. it will continue to get more views yeah. if I do stuff on that topic, thus continuing to grow my the, the audience around. And again, this is work of choice, right? Yeah. I'm, I've chosen this path. And uh, so I'm not complaining at all. I don't want this yeah. to come across as complaining, nope. but it is the reality of YouTube is that this is why I read all these stories about YouTubers or creators, podcasters burning out Yeah, because the thing they set out to talk about that, to create that they're excited about, yeah. you have to weave that into a narrative of also trying to make it work Yeah, otherwise. Right. Yeah. Amy was talking about this yesterday. The, the incentive toward one dimensionality, yeah. And I completely understand that. And I mean, for how many years after I took an apprenticeship as a blacksmith, did people call me the blacksmith? I'm not a blacksmith. Like I, I, di I did that and it was great and I enjoyed it and I learned a ton, but I'm not a, like, I don't identify as a blacksmith. Pigeonholing is really easy. It's easy to resent people for pigeonholing, but you do it yourself, you know? It's human nature. It's hard to think about an entire person. There's no room in your head for everybody you meet to be an entire person. That same, that same incentive is why Facebook is addicting. Because 
it's so easy to see that people want that content and to go, okay, I'll do that then. And if you were a little less stubborn about your ethics, about the things that you care about, you would still be making, you'd be making exclusively videos about minimalism and you'd be probably one of the leading voices in minimalism because you still have the, the thoroughness and the holistic perspective on minimalism that I imagine a lot of them are missing. On the other hand, maybe that's also a challenge. You know, people want, like you said uh, yesterday, it's easier to sell, buy this thing, use it this way, and then your problem will be gone than it is to say, to get people to buy, you have to take a moment. You have to look in your soul, <laughs> find out what you care about, and then like do some, make some hard choices and change something about your behavior, and then your problem will get a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Or tra transform. <laughs> transform into yeah, yeah. Or you'll stop caring about it as much or whatever. Right, yeah. right. There's just no, the both frustrating and real thing about all of this stuff is that humans are just incredibly complex. Yeah. And, and the nature of problems is that there is no thing. There, there, there's no just like one stop right. solution. How to be a person. My obsession now with habits is that it's, it took me far too long to get the, to this realization about about habit, that that you can work out as hard as you want for a year, but if you stop once you reach your goal, mm -hmm. it will go away mm -hmm. like fully. Yeah, you may retain some muscular skeletal benefit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the long term, but I would several times in my life work out intensely for for six months inevitably injure myself somehow and then stop mm -hmm. and it would all just go right back to yeah. where it was and what's been the most different thing about the last year for us of, of amy and i working out together mm -hmm. eating together obviously we're together a lot because we work together and do all this stuff but is, is that we slowed the heck down mm -hmm. and just like day to day every day doesn't both does not matter and matters immensely mm -hmm. and it, it is the realization that like i only need to do today what i'm willing to probably do again tomorrow because that's yeah. how as soon as you don't the right. level that you've achieved goes away and maybe that's a really overly complex way to say that like the ways that we show up each day are what where we will be. Yeah. What was that quote? The the how we spend our days. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the Annie's alert. How we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. Yeah. And my my tidbit is the that I tacked on is is the the blur of the existence that yeah. the, because so many of my prior experiences, I don't necessarily have that memory of, of the specific, like, mm -hmm. but I, I have the feeling of the blur of knowing how that time felt, of knowing how that period of my life felt. Yeah. And that it's just the little ways that, you know, we show up that, that become that. You did a review of my notebook. I did. 
a review or an unboxing or a uh, first impressions or just a, like a a live on camera discovery of the of the it's thing. It's a good way to put it. I, I I don't think I've seen anybody do that. I like that you are a friend and it was still an honest one. Mm-hmm. You weren't patting me on the back the whole time. Uh, it was just, here's what I see. I thought that was good. I also appreciate the delicate irony of that moment that, or, or what could appear as a delicate irony that your channel could be taken to be a minimalism exclusively and you could take minimalism to be a prescription about how to live your life that includes never buying anything uh, it's it's complicated that feeling is complicated because i don't want to create junk i don't want more detritus that's actually the whole point of the notebook our tagline one of our alternate taglines was shed detritus which is not going to work as yep. a tagline <laughs> but i love that word um i'm gonna have to google that later <laughs> <laughs> I, I did enjoy making that and it was my first ever sort of unboxing or product review on the channel mm-hmm. in four years of, of having it and you know another recent video i did uh someone commented i, I commented about how i made these acoustic panels mm-hmm. in my shop in in the garage um, where I have a small woodworking type just construction area. Yeah. And uh, one of the, someone commented, a minimalist with a wood shop? Hmm. <laughs> and uh, I just found that so funny. Since it was a comment, you have no tone associated with that. So allow me to give an alternate it could reading. Be a... <laughs> a minimalist with a wood shop? Hmm. <laughs> Which is actually an appropriate way to approach you. Hilarious. Like, oh, he's not what I thought. Hilarious, yeah. No, that's that's true. You're right. There is there is little to no context on the tone uh, of comments like this, but it, it, I have to I have to say about this thing in general. Um, this is what I've always believed, always felt. But um, my friend Joshua, who has been writing about minimalism and owning less for a very long time, uh, <laughs> he he said, "My goal is never to be a minimalist." That's like that yeah. is not a thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's not a gate you need to get through. Mm-hmm. Can I be a minimalist if I still have? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> right. And and it's not a club. It's mm-hmm. not a thing. It's just a way to think about for me. I'll speak for myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's a way to think about the things in your life and make sure they're not getting in the way of you living in your values. Like mm-hmm. it's just a it's just a a framework to be like is this distracting me from pursuing the things that matter most to me? From being with my family more, from pursuing my dreams, from potentially building something great or experimenting that what if mm-hmm. moment and allowing yourself to do it if the things in your life are preventing you then you could probably get rid of some things and be pretty well off for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a label first versus uh, meaning first Mm. distinction. Does the label come from what you do or does what you do come from the label? For me, that one's going to be vegetarian. Mm. 
So do you describe yourself as a person who doesn't eat meat or you describe yourself as a vegetarian? It depends on the context. If you think you're never going to talk to this person again or you just want the conversation to be over, it's easier to just say, I'm vegetarian because people know what that means. Mm -hmm. So if you go into a room and you say, I'm the minimalist guy, like people go, okay, that gives me enough. And then if they try to talk to you, they will quickly discover that it is more nuanced and you apply that label to yourself to save time. And there's, that's fine. The problem comes from a person who is not, definitely not that, and says, I want to become a minimalist. And then they go, okay, what are the things that a minimalist does? Okay, they do the KonMari method. They have all white walls and black furniture. You know, like, here's the checklist of things you have to do to be a that thing versus um, here's what I care about. I'm going to do this. The best label I have for that is this. I'll use that in in situations where that saves time. Another one for that one was uh, when I discovered the, the term hard determinism in mm. college. I was like, should I tell people that's what I think? Or should I just tell them what I think? Same topic. So good luck. I, I don't know. Good for <laughs> And good for you not identifying as a, as a label. Because you're, you're a person and you have things you believe in, but... Mm-hmm. But that's a challenge. That's the same challenge we were talking about before. With um, it's easier to have a channel as the minimalist than it is as a whole person. Mm-hmm. But it's no way to live. I want to be as holistic a designer as possible. I'm making progress on that. There's so much more to learn, mm-hmm. but it's so fun to learn. And I love an elegant solution to a problem. And the most elegant solution to a problem that there is, is a perspective shift. You change your mind about whether it's a problem, you've solved the problem without doing anything. Ooh. And I love that, but that's so hard to sell. <laughs> Nobody buys <laughs> that product. That. Yeah. It reminds me of the Mitch Hedberg joke mm. of- Oh, great. Want <laughs> of wisdom. If he, he said, if I ever think of a funny joke, I have to find a pen so I can write it down. And if I can't find a pen, I have to convince myself that it wasn't that funny. Wow. That's, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> it's a little nihilistic, but exactly right. Would you like to answer a question? Yeah. From the bowl? Yeah. Excellent. You don't mind reading it aloud. These are questions from previous guests, a few that Amy and I came up with initially, and a few from YouTube commenters, actually. So okay. If you don't mind reading it aloud and where it came from. Okay. What is your favorite book by Brooke McAllery? Brooke McAllery, uh, creator of the Slow Home podcast and website blog. Lovely, lovely woman who was here from Australia on her wow. book tour when I got to interview her. Oh, Australian accent on a podcast. That's mm. great. It's so good. If I, could, if I could pick an accent, Australian might be it. A nice dignified Australian accent. I don't know if it <laughs> gets any cooler than that. It's, uh, it feels like a cheat code for YouTubers <laughs> and podcasters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you thought about buying an Australian accent for yourself? I might look into it. Okay. The answer is yes, I have. I, I know I have to pick one because not to pick one is to be dishonest, but I'm going to start with my, my pick and then I'm going to give a couple other answers. There's a book called Shop Class as Soulcraft 
that found me at just the right moment in my life. It's a story of a man who got a philosophy master's degree or something, a PhD, uh, and he worked in a think tank, and then he realized that he, his favorite part of the day was at the end when he went to go work on his motorcycle and or VW Beetle. He talked about the history of working on stuff with his hands and the honesty of that, um, of that work. One thing that stuck out to me was the, when he asked someone to help him soup up the engine of his VW Beetle, and the person said, okay, do you want to make it go the same speed, but practically forever? Like, do you just want to improve its survivability? Do you want it to be a little bit faster and last you for 130,000 miles? Or do you want it to be able to go 150 miles an hour, but only last you like 15,000 miles? That is the constraints of reality. And being forced to think about that is special and invites a kind of wisdom in your approach to a problem. That one, that's a really good book. Uh, and it does, it's not, it's not prescriptive, which is part of it. It's not saying quit your job and go work with your hands. It's just let's respect that working with your hands and making things is an intellectual pursuit. And it's a kind of intellectual pursuit that is nearly absent anywhere else. And the lessons that you'll take from building things in physical reality will help you everywhere. Up there is that other book I was talking about, How Engineers See how engineers see the world, the ideal book, um, because there are no, there are very few words in it, and words are hard. Um, and then there's, for fiction, Blood Meridian or an Evening Red, the uh, Redness, the Evening Redness in the West, something like that. Mm. Blood Meridian, the Cormac McCarthy book. Okay, brutal, absolutely devastating book. It's, it's brutal on every level. There's, it's not clear there's any moral. It's not. No one is kind. Anything good is destroyed. It's awful. But there's there's a lot of truth in it. And there's he does something with the language that I had never seen anywhere before and really made me appreciate the way that dreams work and the mind works and language works mm -hmm. and the, the relationship between language and thinking. He uses almost no punctuation in the book, and a lot of the sentences take advantage of that, where because you don't really know which noun is the subject and which is the object, or whatever, um, or, or to which noun the adjective applies, the sentences mean many things simultaneously, and somehow he manages to make the follow-up sentence not define for sure which one it was. So the whole thing kind of has to be read as a dream. It has to be read without expectation of complete understanding. And that's so cool. <laughs> there's, an, there's also an efficiency of language there because the, if you can construct the sentence to mean two things at once, you can say both things at once and it can really mean those things. And in, a, in an artful pursuit, that can be really 
especially powerful. It makes for terrible engineering writing. If you want to communicate clearly, it's the opposite of what you need to do. Mm -hmm. But there is also a certain kind of clarity when talking about emotions. The correct clarity is ambiguity. And he nails it in that book. It's, it's amazing. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, I'm very curious about that now. <laughs> Good luck. What are you excited about right now? Marrying Kelly. Spending more time with my family. Learning about myself and the world. And becoming more capable of solving more important problems. I'm also pretty excited for the advent of edible fake meat. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It's coming. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of people doing it. Wow. We're there. That's oddly specific. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's a big deal, I yeah. think, for me. Yeah, it changes everything yeah. in so many ways. I mean, Tyson... I bought Tyson chicken stock or Tyson food stock because they're investing in fake meat. Hmm. Uh, I think Arby's, Jack in the Box, White Castle, they've all experimented with it, mm -hmm. which means that, I mean, they don't do anything unless it's a better choice financially. Right, right, profitable. It yeah. just so happens to be ethically much cleaner, less wasteful, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yeah. So as soon as we get to a point where a stubborn Ron Swanson type will eat something that isn't from an animal, I think that will mark the beginning of a huge shift in the ethical well-being of our culture, mm -hmm. humanity in general. Yeah. So where can people find you and what you do online? Well, my portfolio website is aspaglieri.com. On there, there are links to both CR Brand and These Men Are Professionals, but you can also find me at tmapllc.com. That's the These Men Are Professionals website. My keychains are on there. And then cr-brand.com is where we sell the notebooks. Well, thank you. Appreciate the conversation. You taking the thank time you. to come on and uh, look forward to sharing the episode. Yeah, it was really good to see you. All right. And that concludes my conversation with Alex. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, I would greatly appreciate it if you took a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, it is a huge help for podcasts like this one to get the word out. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. We'll see you in the next one.